Welcome to TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. The presenting sponsor of TalkScript is SitePen, a JavaScript consultancy helping companies improve their apps, tools, and teams. Check it out at sitepen.com. Let's find out if TalkScript is your type of podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new exciting episode of the TalkScript podcast. I'll be your host today, Nick Nisi, and I'm joined uh, with my fellow co-host, Paul Shannon. Howdy. And today we have two special guests from the Ionic team, and that's Josh Thomas and Adam Bradley. Josh, would you like to say hello? Hello, everyone. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I am a developer at Ionic, and more recently I've been, let's see, in the last two years I've been working on Stencil. And my official title now is Product Manager of Stencil DS. Ooh, nice. Based here in Madison, Wisconsin. Very cool. And you were also a speaker at the inaugural TypeScript Conf last year. I was. That's how we met, actually, was at TS Conf last year. That was a great experience. I'm looking forward to this year's as well. Awesome. Me too. And Adam, would you like to say hello? Sure, yeah. Adam Bradley. I'm the director of open source development at Ionic. Been with uh, Ionic from the beginning when we were using jQuery Mobile. And then we uh, transformed into creating Ionic and then come around version between version Three and four, we developed Stencil, so I've been working on Stencil and Ionic since then for the last two years. Yeah, that's what the topic of our podcast is going to be about, is Stencil and web components from there. But I, I kind of wanted to get a little bit of history from you. So you kind of mentioned the history of Ionic a little bit, and that was with using jQuery Mobile kind of as the starting point? Yeah, I first started working with Max and Ben, who are the co-founders of Ionic, um, around 2012. I was working at a company doing a jQuery mobile development, and they had built a drag-and-drop interface builder for jQuery mobile, and that's how I got to know them at a local JavaScript meetup here, which actually, oddly enough, Josh runs. And so as we were building out jQuery mobile interface builder, more and more customers were addressing us as saying, like, hey, it doesn't act like a native app. It doesn't do this. It can't do this. It feels kind of slow. And over time, we realized that a lot of the issues were not so much in our builder, but rather it was jQuery mobile. And so that was kind of the birth of Ionic, which is a UI mobile interface builder for building mobile applications. Nice. And I think that I've definitely heard of Ionic before years ago. And I think I want to say that when I first heard about it, it was more associated with the Angular ecosystem. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So yeah, that was around then 2013 is when we started building Ionic and we built it off of Angular JS, So the first version of Angular. And everything was great. Everything worked awesome. We had a blast. We quickly exploded with users starting to, or developers using it. And that was a lot of fun. But then over time, the issue that we, that we quickly addressed was that Angular 2 came out, and then Angular 4 and Angular 5. And so, as you, you may or may not know, between AngularJS and, and the current version of Angular, there's a massive difference between how they're programmed. And that caused us lots of issues in trying to provide a UI library to everyone. And so we did rewrite all of Ionic from scratch to Ionic 2 and then Ionic 3 following Angular 2 and Angular 4 and 5. And that was a massive undertaking. It was very, very difficult to basically start from scratch. And also, the I think the whole ecosystem, the JavaScript ecosystem, kind of wasn't there yet. You think of 2014, 2015, Webpack was still kind of being figured out at the time. Let's see, we were using Tracer and then it was ES6 or ES5 to 6, Babel. So there was, there was many things that was kind of all over the place. So a lot of our development, a lot of our challenges we had, we had a lot of with like the, the tooling wasn't there. And then as you know, TypeScript was around in that time frame too. And so we were a large part of working with the Angular team and getting to know TypeScript and getting to know decorators and how things worked. And that's where we like initially fell in love with TypeScript, I guess, is like in that process of transitioning from Ionic 1 to Ionic 2 using TypeScript. Let's be honest, though. We felt like we were forced into it. Yeah. And then we realized that we loved it. Yeah, it, it is funny how it played out. That so, sounds like an anthem for people p adopting TypeScript. <laughs> it, it really is. Oh, yeah. That's, that's like the thing I say is like for the first two weeks I learned TypeScript, I had to do it because everyone at Ionic made me because I'd been writing JavaScript for like eight years. And then after two weeks, I realized, oh my gosh, this is so much better. And I don't think I've written a line of JavaScript since. Yeah, it's funny how it played out because, you know, I, you know, Angular 2 was on TypeScript. And so we kind of, 
reluctantly we're like, all right, we'll uh, we'll do it too because the users are asking for types. I don't really know what these things are, but users want it. It'll make all our compiling easier. Okay, whatever, fine, we'll do it. And then as we're converting our code base to, from JavaScript to TypeScript, more and more like, oh, I guess that wouldn't have worked. I guess that function would have been a runtime error. Oh, and like, and then like within like I don't know a couple of days, we did a complete 180 of like, wow, this is this is great for you know, developing a large code base with a large team. And so immediately did the 180, uh, immediately fell in love with it. And so, yeah, haven't turned back since. And so, and I would definitely say anyone who, who doesn't like TypeScript just hasn't used it for more than a day. So yeah, we're big fans of it. Yeah, that's that's so funny because that is totally like my story into TypeScript too. I was very reluctant when the rest of the company was like, oh, well, TypeScript is great, let's get on it. And in fairness to me, I think that TypeScript 1 kind of did have a lot of warts that made me kind of want to shy away. I just specifically remember having JS and TS files right next to each other and having to like manually manage a list of all of those files. And that kind of left a sour taste in my mouth for the initial part of it. But I'm totally on board now and I haven't written a line of pure JavaScript in I can't remember how long now. Yep, it completely makes sense. Yeah, that's definitely true. I think the turning point in TypeScript was around 2.8-ish when it became really suitable for library writers and, and it became nicer to use again. Yeah, it really, that does sound like between 2.7 and 2.8, that really was the, the turning point, I think. I recall like 1.8 was a big challenge. I'm mean, getting the two and yeah, there was, there was kind of some big gaps in between all of them, but, but really we haven't had an issue with TypeScript for years now and we update and we actually haven't had any major challenges in updating other than, the, hey, there's this new feature that I just read about. So yeah, we're huge fans of it. So the transition from Angular JS to Angular was it was a lot of time spent from the organization. How long do you think we we worked on that transition, Adam? Geez, I would probably say, you know, two to two and a half, maybe even three years. Cause it wasn't so much just like, all right, we gotta rewrite this component. It was a complete mind shift of all right, this works entirely different now. How are we going to make that work? Or like before, you know, AngularJS was completely like runtime code where you threw it into the web page and it would kick in and stuff would work and you could have hacks on the window and document to make things work and, and everything was great. And then um, Angular 2 comes around, it all had to be transpiled and it had to be bundled uh, with Webpack and it needed a CLI to be able to bundle. So there was a whole new tooling concept that, like I was saying, it really wasn't figured out very well. And so most of our time went into trying to get tooling to work, trying to get stuff to transpile correctly, trying to understand the difference between system and common JS and ES modules and when you can use them, when you cannot. And so a lot of our time of those two years was not working on components. It was just trying to figure out how to get stuff to compile. And even, you know, it's one thing to say, well, how hard is that? I can make my Angular app work easily enough. And that's usually true. I mean, someone can build one app and they can have a hello world and their app works great. The challenge we face at Ionic was that we need to provide 100 components to millions of users. Being that middle layer was a lot more challenging than it sounds, specifically, you know, with, again, the tooling was in such flux at all times that it was really difficult for us to do that, to be able to provide a library that could work on everyone else's machines, on all the different versions of Node, on all the different versions of Angular and, and such. So that was where we face most of our time. So you have went from jQuery mobile to AngularJS to Angular now to web components. Do you feel like this is your final home or is there something else on the horizon? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, hopefully, I mean, it's always kind of been the, the funny part about us. Is we don't like refactoring the exact same component over and over again. You know, like it really our ion toggle or ion button. It's the same as it has been for the last five years. But for some reason, we're having to find ourselves rewriting the thing from scratch again and having to make sure that it can work inside of the different versions of different frameworks. And so that's kind of where Stencil was born. It, it really wasn't a project to create for other people to use. It was specifically an internal project for us to use so that we could become more, I guess, robust and not have to worry about refactoring ion button, ion toggle, and the hundreds of or the hundred different components that we have. And so yeah, I guess so just a quick backstory of stencil is like it really wasn't meant to be a standalone or its own project. We kind of had decided that we're gonna start using web components somewhere around 2017, I think December 2017, when Safari and iOS had announced that their their tech preview had web components natively in it. And so half of our users and developers are on Android, which already had web components natively. 
The other half would be iOS. And so when they said that they're doing it natively, it was like, well, here we go. This is perfect. So now we can write components that can work natively inside the browser. We, don't, we can code to browser APIs. We don't have to code to framework APIs. We don't have to worry about when the framework makes a big change, now all of a sudden we need to rewrite our entire code base yet again and take another two years and try to do that. We can just use browser APIs. And so we initially started that. Did you get on early enough with V0 web components that you had to rewrite? Nope. That was that was the one that we avoided because that was Good. you know the, the classic, uh, it only works in Chrome, it's slow everywhere else. And that was, you know, I was just as big a naysayer as anyone else of like, well, well we're not we're going to rewrite Ionic to only be performant in, in uh, new versions of Chrome. You know, and especially with in that time frame, Android wasn't really self-updating very well. And even Android 4.4 is, is stuck on Chrome 34, I believe. And so there's, there's lots of challenges with, you know, trying to work on mobile devices, especially low-end of Android devices. Yeah, the V0 spec was completely out of the picture for the longest time because it just wasn't practical. But yeah, once Safari was on board with it, then that's when we were able to make the change. And that's when we discovered new issues. You know, it's like, all right, cool, Shadow DOM, we can use that. We can use custom elements, all these different things. And as we're doing that, we realized, all right, we just lost out on all those cool features of a framework. We just lost out on everything about routing. We lost out about hot module reloading, live reloading, CSS getting inlined into the HTML pages. So there's so many things that we didn't get now that we weren't using a framework. And as I'm sure you can see where this is going, that's kind of where Stencil was born. Yeah, we, we tried to you know, work from vanilla web components initially. We did some research to identify if that was a viable route for us. And Ionic is something that is maintained by a team of developers. And we didn't feel like the developer experience of working with raw web components was good enough. And that's really where Adam started investing more time into looking into alternatives to that. The original idea is that we don't want to keep rewriting components over and over again. We want to use these browser APIs because we know custom elements, Shadow DOM, they're locked inside of each of the browsers. We can code to those. But like I was saying, we lose out on all these framework features. And so the big thing we, we wanted to get across with Stencil and we wanted to really make sure is that Stencil is not yet another framework. It certainly can appear like one. I think when you read the docs or, or you see how it's used, it can appear like, oh, here we go again. Here's the latest and greatest framework, but it's really not meant to be that. It really is a tool that you use that compiles down to web components. And so that what the actual code that, that you wrote as the, you know, the original source of your component and the actual code that's running in the browser is purely just JavaScript using native APIs. It's not using some stencil API. It's not using a stencil way of doing events or a stencil way of doing properties and attributes have changed, anything like that. So that's why we're able to really make the, the runtime as small as it can be because we're really not providing much of a runtime at all. And how we do that with the compiler is entirely TypeScript. We think TypeScript entirely for every little bit of it, being able to give us all the power and control of why we can make stencil components as small as they are and to understand how they work completely comes into the TypeScript API. When you say that, is that like the compiler API, like being able to like transform code or? Yep. So largely it goes into the transforms. So the before and after transforms, we're able to, you know, take the TypeScript input, take away all the types, but we keep all the information. We keep all the metadata information about like what's inside of this component, how is it being used, what are you not using, what are you using? And so that with that, when it comes down to building the web component, we're able to see that, oh, this component's never using listeners, or this component is watching this method. So we need to have this little bit of runtime. We need to not have this little bit of runtime. And so with this metadata, we're able to really build just a tiny bit of JavaScript of exactly what that component needs and doesn't need is kind of the, the important part. And then the next phase is being able to pull out all the, extract all the documentation for all that. Because again, we built Sensor for ourselves because we've got 100 components and we've got a large documentation site that needs to be maintained. It needs to know what all the events, methods, properties, it needs to have all the descriptions added to it, all the different types. And so we wanted to make sure that we can keep coding, but our documentation would automatically get updated. And this really isn't a new concept, right? Like, you know, just about every framework or any project has something like this. But we wanted to make sure that this was available for web components, which is an, probably one of the larger parts of why we created Stencil. Yeah, one of the nice parts I saw in the Stencil compiler is that it uses, it looks like it uses TypeScript to automatically create your JSX 
intrinsic elements. So you automatically have typing support for the web components that you're creating. And it, it builds the HTML element types out as well. So you have a global means of kind of getting those types back into your, your application. Whereas if you were to build web components without Stencil, you're on the hook for writing all that stuff yourself. Absolutely. I think that was one of the core features that we added for the developer experience in the early days. I think that when we first started this, we, we weren't sure if we were going to go with JSX. We knew we wanted to go with VDOM, but we weren't sure about JSX. And with a little bit of work, we were able to manipulate the transformations we had in place to take JSX and get it into a format that was something we were comfortable with. And as part of that, we realized that TypeScript with JSX is really good. Like the TypeScript support for JSX is a really great experience. So how could we leverage that to make it a better experience in working with web components? And the next step was auto-generating the types for the components in the project so that you get full TypeScript support of the attributes in the same way you would get with React today. And I think it makes for a really nice developer experience when you're using those. Yeah, arguably the JSX support TypeScript is better than just plain old Tom support. Yeah, and that's, that's another piece is that when we have our JSX, it's really easy to not worry about whether something is an attribute or a property of a web component. In JSX, we kind of treat them the same way, right? And then we distinguish based off the information whether it's actually an attribute of that component or a property. So as you declare it within your component, um, Adam can probably speak to this a little more, but we make decisions based off the type of information you're passing. So we don't make the developer distinguish that necessarily when they're writing their code. It just works. Yeah, it's interesting hearing that too. Because this is, again, like you have web components and you have JSX. And for instance, again, web components might have read-only attributes and properties, but that's not a typical pattern you see in a reactive type architecture. It tends to be property passing and one-way property passing, in fact. I would say that we took some inspiration on our approach to that from Preact because Jason spent quite a bit of time on that. Would you agree, Adam? Yeah, specifically, you know, he... He's, you know, Preact is is React, but without React, you know, so it's able to make everything work with the same JSX and how JSX is able to assign properties and events to a real DOM element using the web standards way. And so we kind of took, yeah, a lot of inspiration from that of, you know, like how on click the JSX on click attribute actually assigns, you know, an event listener of click to that element. And so we did a lot of the, the same ideas of translating the JSX call or JSX attributes into how the web would like to see that done. So again, we, we didn't really invent a new way of doing events or anything like that. We just are just using exactly what's already provided in the browser. Which is great to have that standardization. So Stencil is just a, a part of the equation though. Like, is there recommendations around how to manage state for an entire application or to build up an application from there? Yeah, I would say in general, we've, we've really focused on it being more of a design system or, or more of a building a UI library that's shareable. And so exactly what Ionic needs. But that's not to say that Stencil can't be used entirely as its own framework or as its own application. We haven't really pushed that hard, you know, because it's like saying, you know, Stencil versus the world, which is not something that we feel we've got want to put a lot of effort into. But rather, Stencil is something that helps you build components that can be used everywhere. But that said, we do have, you know, Stencil Redux and Stencil State Tunnel that's able to manage that concept where you can have kind of a global state that each of the components can reuse, are able to use, and then you can build large applications out of Stencil. For example, Ionic Studio is one of our commercial products that we sell for our company, and it uses Stencil entirely. It's basically an IDE for our drag-and-drop interface builder for Ionic, and that's entirely a large application built on Stencil. But, but again, kind of our large focus right now is it's more of a design system or, or building a UI component library. So this might be a perfect solution for like a company who might might be using React and Angular and Dojo and jQuery and like all of these different frameworks across like they're a huge company, several different products, but they want to kind of adopt a, a familiar design system across all of them. This would be a good solution for implementing that. And then would you expect that they like the React devs would write a wrapper around that to be able to use it 
in React and same thing with like the Angular devs? So I would say like, you know, we built Stencil like two years ago. We've been working on it. It just recently hit 1.0, maybe a month ago, a month or, I think it was about a month ago. But what we found is probably around six months ago, we started getting contacts from a lot of Fortune 1000 companies who are using Stencil for that exact reason. So there's a lot of Fortune 1000 companies who have contacted us and said, hey, we're building component libraries and design systems with Stencil because we like the developer experience and the ability to use those components with React, Angular, Vue, etc. So we've been working on productization of that and creating tools for enterprise software that would make it easier to build design systems with Stencil and integrate those into separate frameworks. So we have a product offering that is called Bindings, where you essentially get additional output targets for your Stencil components, and it generates React, Angular, and Vue components based on the information we were able to gather from your Stencil components. So underlying, it's still a web component, but to developers who are using those components, they actually don't realize that it's a web component. So yeah, that's what we have generated. Yeah, and I guess the, the one big part that I realized I missed out on on the whole backstory is that, you know, as we built Ionic and as it was as it became popular and was widely used, the question came up over and over and over again, like, this is awesome, can I use it in React? This is great, can I use it in Vue? You know, I was like I, I did my last project on AngularJS and now I'm I'm using um Ember. Can I use it in there? And so the answer was always immediately no. I mean, the thing's written in AngularJS. It's not going to work in the other one. And then the same thing happened with Angular 2. You know, we, we put all this time into rewriting all of Ionic. And then React became popular in 2013, 2014. And that was the question over and over and over again. It's like, can we use this in React? And sorry, it can't. And so that was also, not only did Stencil kind of solve our problems of having to keep rewriting all of our components over and over again, but the big driving force behind was that like, if we use web components at the lowest level, then it can be used in any framework because all frameworks just deal with DOM elements, right? Like whether React created the element or Angular created or Vue created, it doesn't matter who created the DOM element. Somehow it's in the web page. That's where web components and really specific custom elements help us out there is that we can have Ionic built with custom elements. And if a framework wants to integrate with it, wants to talk with it, it's using the exact same stuff that that framework already knows how to do all those communication. And so, so I was saying earlier how we don't have a special stencil way. It's kind of for this reason is that we know that React sets properties and, and Angular is able to have event listeners. And so we just use those. We can work in any framework without too much trouble. And so that was kind of the first project with stencil was to make sure that we'd have a common source, but there was an Angular output target. And what we mean by that is we didn't want to have you know, Ionic web components that Angular developers needed a special way to make them work. As Angular developers, they just want to, you know, import the ng module, Ionic ng module, and they want to just start using it, just how I'm an Angular developer. Why wouldn't I want to do anything differently? And so that's what the Angular binding does, is that it was able to have this layer that makes our web components understandable by Angular. So as an Angular developer, you're going to use APIs like content children, view children, things like that, and you're going to expect them to work. ng module, ng model, all these different Angular APIs should work exactly how you expect them to work. And that's what these bindings do, is that they're able to kind of just wire up the web component to the APIs of that framework with a tiny, tiny layer to pull that off. So now instead of having all of your components written in Angular and then bringing them in as Angular, you can write them in Stencil, and that's the lowest level. And then there's a wrapper that bridges the connections between web components now and Angular or React or or whatever. Yep, exactly. And really, in Angular's case, it's more just a layer so so that the Angular compiler can understand those web components as Angular components. But there's really not any uh, runtime, very little runtime that's being added to Ionic Angular. It's rather just just layer for the compiler to understand um, how these things come together. And the same thing can be said about the React binding that Josh put together. Yeah, we can say that Angular is really good with web components, right? 
you have to put the custom element schema in configuration. View is kind of just out of the box, right? The view integration for web components is pretty great. React says they work with web components, but we all know that that really isn't true. Yeah, if you right? if you go to custom <laughs> custom elements everywhere, it's everywhere. Yeah, Rob Dotson did a he did a really good job documenting that. We've been in contact with Rob and a lot of teams at Google about this particular topic, and it sounds like there might be some movement from React in the next year, and we're really looking forward to that. That'd be wonderful. So the the issue with web components in React that we're talking about is React creates synthetic events, and that doesn't mesh well. If I remember correctly, that's the issue, right? That's one of the issues. Uh, the other issue, in my opinion, is bigger, which is React does not set properties on a custom element. It only does attributes. So what this means is that if you're trying to pass an array or an object to a web component from React, React does what appears to be stringify or serialization of that. So that if you're passing an object, it actually turns it into type of object <laughs> and doesn't pass the information. Yeah, and that's a huge misconception right now is we read all the time about how web components only can take uh, strings as data. And that's completely, you know, incorrect, I guess, because it's it's not that they don't they only can take strings, it's just that React is only passing a string. It's converting your data before it gets to the web component. So it's not the web component's issue with that. It's rather that JSX, React's version of JSX is converting it to strings first. Yeah, but Preact does it right. Yeah, exactly. So it's 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 not a JSX problem really either. It's it's React's implementation of it. But back to like how all of the components really are just elements with properties and React does have a way to still set properties. That's what Josh was able to put together. And that's how Ionic React is working, is that we have this layer that's able to translate for you so that it, you are just importing a normal React component. You are just using the React component in JSX as you expected. You don't have to use them as web components. You don't have to come up with a wrapper to try to not stringify all the properties. For example, Ion button as a web component is all lowercase ion-button. But in React, in JSX, it's going to be capital I, capital B, one word. And so it's the exact same thing. Uh, so anyone using Ionic React they're not going to see anything different. And it's not that we're trying to hide the fact that we're using web components. It's that it really doesn't matter. And as a React developer, you can, you can use Ionic React no differently than the next UI library. That's really great because I've, I've had to write those wrappers where you have to ref escape to get events and do all <laughs> these other things. That is something we have in our DS offering. And that's because we had to build it for Ionic because what's the likelihood we're going to get adoption of Ionic in the React community when it's vanilla web components and everybody has to make their own wrappers, you know, the adoption is, that's not going to happen. So we felt that it was most important to meet the developers on their own ground and to create a developer experience that they would expect rather than having them jump through hoops in order to feel productive working with web components. Yeah. And now we have web component version of Ionic. We have the Angular version, the React version, but what I'm most excited about is that our core developers are coding once. They're coding the toggle and the button one time. They're fixing one bugs that fixes it across the board. So we're not having to have these different versions that we have to worry about, different ways of doing CSS and different ways. You know, that's kind of the biggest driving factor behind all this. Yeah, so we really want to get to a future where when people are thinking about building component libraries, they're thinking about building web components and they're worrying less about the frameworks. We think that frameworks are great. They make you incredibly productive quickly and they create a common ground for the developers on teams, but it makes it very difficult when you're building components directly in those frameworks for libraries because you're kind of isolating the reuse. And we think that the more people who are building components in web components, it's more likely we're going to have a lot of high-quality components out there that are useful across all frameworks. Yeah, a common theme that we kept you know, realizing is that you know, any one company has many web teams, and each web team has many different projects, could be in different frameworks, and even so different versions of that framework. And so any normal company has many different frameworks that they're using. 
And that's just, that's just how it is. And so to try to ask everyone to like, all right, this is now the best framework in the world. Rewrite all of your old apps, all your legacy apps into using this best one that works today. I just, it's just not realistic. And so that's where web components do. And really what we wanted to leverage with Ionic is that we do want to make components that work in all of them. And that's where, you know, really it's custom elements allows us to pull that off to work in the different, different frameworks. I have a question about the, the runtime and kind of what's included in that. Yep. So the compiler will turn the JSX into a bunch of H functions or what React would call react.createElement. We just use H. And then that H function, each render function on a component turns it into VDOM. And then that VDOM is what does the diffing. And so really that's where the, the majority of the runtime is, is, is that diffing. Where we do differ from React is that React kind of diffs the entire application. Whereas we are not an entire application. We're made up of many standalone components that do their own thing. It often said, you know, VDOM is slow because you're comparing the entire app and whether there's no changes, it's got to check that. That's not really true with how we're using it. And even more so, we do keep references to every single element in the DOM. So we're not having to do element lookup either. And so our version, we're able to do put getters and setters on every single property as kind of that front layer of if you never change the value, it's never even going to attempt to do a diff. And if you've got many different components on the web page and none of their properties change, then none of them know to do the VDOM diff. If one property changes, then just that one component, that one instance of that one component is the one that says like, okay, something changed, let's do a check here. And so then the second layer is where the VDOM checks in. And again, using kind of our flavor of how VDOM works, where we do keep the references of the element, we don't have to try to do the lookups that can also be performance hit. So our version, we got to get some more benchmarks out there, but our version is, is pretty performant in in that we've got a very tiny runtime. So I think for just the VDOM, it's around 1.5 kilobytes. And depending on, on what your library is using, I think at the most, a stencil runtime can be about four and a half kilobytes at the smallest. Like our, our Hello World component is 133 bytes, not kilobytes, bytes. <laughs> it's kind of a joke, right? <laughs> yeah, it is a joke. I mean, because who needs a Hello World app? It's like that's well, of course it's supposed to be small. It's ridiculous, but that's it's more to show the uh, the point of the compiler is able to understand that you're not using all of these features, and so it's able to get straight to the point. And that's kind of where TypeScript has helped us out is that it's able to understand what is it, what is and is not using, and let's customize this runtime for specifically what this component needs. So when you build a web component with Stencil, then it compiles in HyperScript or anything else that's necessary and then leaves everything else out? Yes. Will each component have its own version of, for instance, HyperScript embedded in there? If they're built together, no. So like Ionic has its own build, so we've got 100 different components and they're all built at the same time. They would all share that same four kilobytes. But if I wanted to have individual web components, I wanted 100 individual separate standalone components then yes, they would each have exactly what that individual component needed, which is kind of no different than you know any other web component. We do offer a lot of different ways of bundling. And one of the more recent experimental things we're working on is the ability, if say you've got 100 components, but they're all like, we know all of these components are going to use the same version of Stencil. There's a way that we can bundle it where you're collecting that version of stencil outside of it and they can all be used independently using the same dependency that's a good feature because then you can reduce your overall size as long as you maintain that singular bundle right we call that n plus one <laughs> the n number of components plus the one download for the library we don't know how it's being consumed we don't know how whether it's webpack or rollup or react or angry we don't know how it's being used at all and how that tooling really works so we wanted to make sure that it was able to lazy load themselves. So a challenge we've always had with Ionic is that we've got these hundred some components, which you may or may not use. And we've got a material design version and we've got the iOS version, which you're only going to be using one of them. So we've got pretty much 200 components, which we have no idea which ones you're going to use. And so that's where the challenge has always been of just like, well, then let's just give them all, you know, because we don't know if you're going to use it. So let's, let's just give you the entire package and sorry, your, your file size is going to be kind of large because we don't know which one you want to use. And so what Stencil is able to provide is that the DOM, the browser, does know exactly which elements you're using. It doesn't know how it got there. It doesn't know if you use jQuery or document.createElement, ion button, or React. 
somehow it showed up into the DOM. And so then that's where Stencil would then know that like, oh, ion toggle is now an element into the DOM. Why don't we go lazy load the actual implementation of it and kick that in async? And also we know that we need the material design version or the iOS version. So again, we're able to reduce a lot of the file size because we know the browser knows exactly what you need now. It's not up to some user config route-based. There's no Webpack configuring of your lazy modules of which ones we think should be bundled together. It's purely up to the browser to decide that. And that's been a huge feature for us because now we can say, here's one file you add to the index file. Here's one script. And you can pick and choose which ones you want on the fly. It doesn't have to be bundled. It doesn't have to use Webpack or Parcel, whatever, to try to figure out how they should come together. Just start using them. And in that case, it's React. Just might start using them. And then the real implementations kick in. The real implementations are able to run. And so that's how Ionic 4 it has been working this year now. And even, even inside of Ionic Angular version has been using this method of, of lazy loading, which has been working great. It's kind of an interesting way. It's, it's hard to explain to developers. No, trust. Trust in this, that whenever the script tag, you know, we load, the, load up the script tag, and whenever the DOM sees this particular tag hit, we're going to download it lazily, and we're going to wire it up for you. And most people will tell us, well, you're going to have a hit. It's not going to feel right, but it's actually really performant. It's surprising. Yeah, and then there's there's many other optimizations that we're able to do with the compiler because, again, we are you know statically analyzing every single bit of every component. So we already we can figure out this graph of who's using what, what depends on what, and so with this graph we're able to see that you know ion item is always inside of an ion list, and they always have an ion icon. So why don't we group those three together? So they're not actually three different bundles that need to be requested separately. But rather, we're able to you know, figure out this graph of like, it would be best if we group these five together and we group these 10 together, however they come together, because we kind of already understand how the apps put together at build time. And so that's how the requests are able to be reduced. And then there's even more optimizations of using module preload scripts, so link rel module preload. Whereas we know like, hey, your index file shows that you're going to use ion button, it shows that you're going to use ion toggle. Why don't we module preload those as the very first thing this window is going to do is start preloading that because it's going to about to hit anyways. And so all these optimizations that we use the compiler for is able to really speed up any issues people might think are going to be issues with lazy loading. Yeah, so this is interesting because originally I thought we were going to talk a lot about web components and the challenges there, but it really sounds like the magic is in the compiler and you know, kind of figuring out what the types are and what everything needs and, and things like that. And because there's a compiler... It allows a lot of the issues to kind of melt away, whereas like the browsers are never going to be able to solve those problems because we're talking about types and we're talking about a pre-compile step that having this system outside of your final render system, the browser, is extremely beneficial and is something that's never going to go away. Yeah, definitely. And to talk about one of the more recent things that was added for 1.0 is support for constructible style sheets. So this is something Adam added, right? You added that, not Manu. <laughs> yep, yep, we added that. Both Manu and I worked on it, but constructible style sheets is, a, is fairly new. If you're using Shadow DOM, every single component has its own copy of the styles that go into that shadow root, which is normally fine. But let's say you have 100 ion items on your page, that means you have 100 copies of that style element of the exact same text being added. Constructible style. And you add those using like a style tag internal to the shadow DOM, right? And that's all part of what Stencil does. So like you would either, you'd have to hand code that as a web component developer. That's one thing that Stencil would do for you is that we just got to style that CSS file that you code normally. And then the Stencil is able to know how to do that for you, which is just one more part of the tooling that, that handles it for you. But it doesn't do anything special. It just does what you would have hand coded anyways. But then constructible style sheets is it allows you to have one copy of the style that all the shadow roots would share. And so when we made that switch, there was a significant performance improvement that we were able to gain, that Ionic was able to gain just by upgrading Stencil. We didn't have to refactor anything, we didn't, which was kind of, it was the first realization of like, it's working, it's doing its job. We didn't have to rebuild everything. And this is a Chrome, a Chrome only feature, right? Yes, it is right now, yeah. So 
we're able to recognize that the browser in use is Chrome and we will use constructible style sheets because understanding the browser, what features are available in the browser, we're able to improve the performance. But the really interesting aspect of this is that there was a new API that was added, but anyone who was building a component with Stencil didn't have to know that. They didn't have to know that constructible style sheets were possible. They didn't have to know that there was a performance improvement by doing that, by using them. We just did it for you. So you worried about the components. Yep, no polyfills to figure out. And that even can be said, you know, we work on IE11 and up. Um, or it's the same thing. It's, it's able to, using the, the type module and no module script tag trick, we're able to have two separate builds. What's the crowd calling it now? Differential bundling? Yeah, differential. We've been doing that for, for a while now because it really is a, a powerful feature where that most of the browsers do support ES2017. They do support ES modules, dynamic imports. But we always had to go to the lowest common denominator, which was their IE11. So everything had to get transferred to IE5. Everything had to have the async await polyfills. And so a lot of blow to code for a very small percentage of the users that needed it. So we've always had two builds, whereas the one for the modern users, which is you know 95% of the world, and then also a second build that's automatically generated for the IE11 you know, old edge to work on. And that's also part of the tooling. You know, So this is something that as a web component developer, using no tooling, you have to figure out on your own. You have to figure out, well, okay, I need to build an IE5 version. I need to transpile async await. I need to do all these different things myself. But that's one thing that Sensor would do for you is that it, it does automatically build the multiple versions for you. That's nice to hear. I just got done building two different versions because IE11 doesn't support class and it needs polyfills and it's a real pain in the butt. And I did see Stencil creating the ESM module and, and no module builds automatically, which is quite, it's quite nice not having to worry about that. Yeah, and we have, and Ionic is the one that surfaced most of these issues because again, you know, Android, not all of them are, are self-updating. So some of them do have a lot older versions of browsers that we have to have to make work. So that's a large part of it. We want to be able to, you know, ship the latest and greatest. And as a core developer, I want to use async await without having to think about it. But then the compiler handles knowing that you're going to need these two different versions, knowing what what you support needs to be able to have these different polyfills in for it. You mentioned that there's always things you're kind of working on and, and kind of trying to work out. So what things in web components have you kind of run into as problematic in the current current iteration that developers might have to think about? We've, we've, we've ran into plenty of them. And that was like, as, we're, as we started using web components, um, specifically Shadow DOM, I would say, is, is kind of the double-edged sword there where it's great that you can encapsulate styles, but now all of a sudden you have a whole bunch of new accessibility issues and form submit issues. One cool thing, though, is we have been working with the Chrome team, and there's a new form uh, submit API that's being worked on. That's I think it's in Canary, or it, it will be, that was kind of a large part of, you know, Manu on the team was helped build out that API because of all the issues we found in Ionic. So Stencil itself doesn't do any code to make sure that the forms work inside of Shadow DOM. But that's what Ionic does do. We do have methods of making sure that you, when you submit a form, there's a hidden input that gets put into the light DOM. It's able to submit your form. Same thing with accessibility. Ionic, you know, we put a lot of work into making sure that as you tab through the different inputs that the correct outlines are being showed and that the correct focus is being showed. So that was more of an Ionic thing that we had to work on and less so stencil. The biggest helper is to always, when you do a custom events, is to make sure that's uh, composed through. And that's basically to make sure that your events can escape from the shadow root, that they bubble up and they keep going through the DOM, even past shadow roots. That's kind of the, the first gotcha with shadow DOM. And then just kind of understanding how the whole concept of the host pseudo selector, that you're, you're styling the host element. It's not like a global CSS anymore. I think there's a lot of gotchas in there. You've got some cool examples of something really simple, like this is great, but I want to use a font that's used across the entire app. That's where all of a sudden you're like, all right, this doesn't work exactly how I thought it would. Custom elements API is awesome. That's a huge reason of why Stencil is able to, huge thing that we take advantage of. The Shadow DOM has more challenges in it because it's kind of a different concept of how styles and encapsulation works, but it also has many advantages, which is why we are using it in probably two thirds of our components. And really they are two different things, right? Shadow DOM is, is its own API, its own 
list of things it can do, and custom elements is a completely different thing. But we group them together in one term called web components, but they're not necessarily the same thing. And so that's one thing that Stencil does do is that we're able to pick and choose which components are Shadow DOM and which ones are not, and even which ones would use Scope CSS, where we can like scope the styles to a specific component. So we wanted to have the features of scoping styles to a component, but not use Shadow DOM. And I think some of the reasons were for form submission. It's always changed it, but but yeah, you know, two thirds of our components are our Shadow DOM, another third is not. That's actually a feature that we're hearing from some people is that one of the things they like about Stencil is the ability to create these composable web components and not have to go all in on Shadow DOM. It's something we recommend, but if you don't want to go with Shadow DOM, we'll still emulate slot for you, and you can use components that way as well. Yeah, one cool thing about supporting IE11 is that we had to write a polyfill to make sure that the renderer would work inside of IE11 since it doesn't support Shadow DOM. But through that work, we were able to use that exact same code to then pre-render Shadow DOM. You know, if you go to stenciljs.com and view the source of it, you see that that is entirely using pre-rendered code. So that first pane is as fast as it can be. It doesn't have any external CSS or JavaScript required for that first pane. And then at the after it's rendered, everything's good to go. It then downloads the rest of the CSS it knows it's going to need. It downloads the components of JavaScript and then hydrates them client-side and turns it into a client-side application. But that was all because of our IE11 support. So we render out the component as if, as if it did have slots, and then we're able to relocate the nodes, specifically how Shutter DOM and slots would have done it. And so it's emulating exactly what should be happening with Shadow DOM. And so that means, you know, moving light DOM content into the specific node that it is supposed to go. And so this is actually similar to what Vue is doing, you know, because they have got a slot API too, but it needs to move around things to the correct locations. In Safari, Chrome, soon to be new Edge, you know, none of that, that stuff is done automatically for us, which is great. You know, that's even less runtime, which is all also part of our code. It's like we realize that you don't need all this relocation code for this type of browser, keeping the components small. But in IE11, we do need that code. And then that's the same stuff we can run in Node. So if you wanted to, so like the, the Stencil site, we're able to pre-render the entire site in less than a second on Node by using the same code where it's, it's like, if you were Shadow DOM, we would need to move this element over into this location. And then client side, we have all these annotations, all these HTML comments inside of the HTML to know how to reconstruct the VDOM. And so, yeah, if you look at the view the source of stencilgs.com, you see a lot of HTML comments. You see a lot of HTML attributes of like S-ID and C-ID. Those are all just instructions to reconstruct the entire VDOM so that the first JavaScript rendering is actually the second, where it got information from the HTML. And so the first render of diffing is actually going to see that, like, oh, this is identical. I don't got to do anything. And so it picks up exactly where the pre-render left off. Cool. So this this does seem like a really nice interface to working with web components. And as I'm sure you've seen on tech Twitter, web components have gotten a bad rap in the last couple of weeks. So kind of caused some hot drama. But this does seem like it makes it a lot easier because as a, an end user of Stencil, you're not writing all of the mundane web component code, but you can ship something that can be picked up and used within React or Angular or whatever, which is really nice. And you can use them as standalone components as well. So it does seem like it's a really nice way to kind of smooth over some of the rougher parts of the the platform while still fully embracing it. So that's really awesome. Yeah, I mean, it really has, there is a lot of hot drama for some reason around web components. I think it's just the history of it, the last, you know, six, seven years of web components Everyone has their own opinion of what it is. We kind of have the middle ground. You know, we feel like, oh, it's, well, if you don't like it, that's great. But Ionic React is using it, and that's why you're able to use Ionic React is because we use web components. But also, a lot of comparisons are somewhat unfair. You know, like when you compare React to raw web component, that's not a fair comparison because it's, it's more like comparing document.create element to a web component because a web component is, has always on purpose been a very low-level web API. And so if you're going to use a low-level web API as comparison to React, it's not a fair one because, again, document.createElement, we should all be coding, right? Because that's the lowest, best way to do that. That's what we should all be using. But we don't because we can develop faster with React and Angular. And so that's, that's kind of what's, where Stencils kind of has the same mindset. It's like we use that low-level API that's a common ground across all browsers, all devices, all frameworks. But we were able to give it framework features at build time, at compile time. 
and the runtime is just using what the browser already provides. Yeah, and this is this is really nice. And I I was actually an unfortunate person who did spend over a year developing with the V0 web component spec and then writing wrappers around that. So this would have been a very welcome solution instead. That was years ago, though, and I don't like to talk about it. Cool. So where can we point our listeners to learn more about Stencil or contributing to it or getting started with it? Yeah, stenciljs.com for sure. And also the Stencil Slack, which would be, if you do it the website, you'll be able to find a link to the Stencil Slack. But that's where the pretty active community, it's a lot of fun being on there. Uh, a lot of people are helping out with contributing, writing docs. And if you, you know, if you want to start using UI library that's, that works in any framework that you want, that's where Ionic steps in. So ionicframework.com would be the UI library for building mobile applications. Nice. Yeah. I love being able to join a Slack and talk with, with you all and, and others who are interested in the same things. If you're not in enough Slack channels, then we've got another one for you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, cool. Josh, Adam, really great talking to you. Thanks so much for coming on on the podcast. Thanks for having us. You know, this is definitely a, a we talked a lot about Stensa, but really it's entirely thankful to TypeScript. TypeScript allowed us to pull this off entirely. And a big thanks to the TypeScript team. Josh and I were out at Microsoft two weeks ago. Great team, great group of developers out there. They're very you know, awesome to work with and helpful. So, so big thanks to them too. Yeah, that's awesome. That's been our experience as well. It's a great project and we're really excited that TypeScript was able to accelerate this project and simplify your development of Ionic. So that's, that's great. Cool. Well, thanks everyone. And you all stay type safe out there. Thanks for listening to the TalkScript podcast. You can round out your TalkScript experience by viewing our show notes, listening to past episodes, subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, and of course, following us on Twitter at TalkScript. We record new episodes every other week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. We've got a good thing going on. Ba, 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 ba. We've got a good